Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christoginian Saturdays. This program is being pre-recorded for Saturday, October 17th, 2020. Right now it is, once again, Wednesday morning, October 14th, and we have Toothfids here with us to discuss his 100 proofs that the Israelites were white. This is part 11 of our series, and we are about to discuss point number 32 in his list. Hello, Truthfids. Thank you once again for joining us. Hey, Bill. Thanks for having me. Yeah, last um, podcast was a bit of a marathon, but uh, hopefully it was very useful to people, you know, uh, learning all about the Assyrian inscriptions and how it all lines up with um, the Bible chronology. Uh, here we can go into Josephus's books and all the best Greek and Roman historians and how it's very useful for people to know all about this. Um, obviously, as you said again last podcast, not everyone has time to spend months and months, you know, reading all the histories. You know, it can take forever. And if you can just get a brief overview over just a few hours of listening, it's re it really helps people. And then um, they can always check the citations, see what they think. Um, so, so the next point, uh, Josephus, um, he he kind of fills in the gaps, right, Bill, around the the void around the Maccabees, and he gives a lot of good insight into the life and politics, what it was like around the time of Judea, right? And he also, one more thing, is he confirms some of the quotes, such as the Spartan letter to the um, priest and other ones, it, it all adds up. And uh, that's why I thought Josephus would be, he, he deserved his own point out because of how important he was, right, Bill? Well, right, absolutely. Josephus is um, extremely important to understand the intertestamental period. And, and we're going to talk about this at length, but I don't really... I'm not impressed with Josephus's interpretations of the early scriptures, even though he had apparently employed better copies of the Hebrew manuscripts than what we find in the Masoretic text. Because Josephus, there are portions of scripture in the Septuagint which are not found in the Masoretic text, but which Josephus does repeat. And he's taking as his source older um, versions or copies of the Hebrew Scriptures. The Masoretic text, the oldest copies of it we have are in, in Russia today, the Codex Leningradus, I believe it's called, and it dates to the 10th century. And I've spoken about this in the past. There's one other codex that's believed to be just as ancient, but more portions of that are missing, where the Codex Leningradus, I, I believe, is more or less complete from a Jewish Masoretic text point of view. So the 10th century, that's not very old at all, if, if you think about the um, history of the Hebrew scriptures. So Josephus, even though we only have him in Greek today, Josephus's reproductions of portions of Scripture show us that the, those portions 
in the Septuagint that aren't in the Masoretic text are indeed authentic and, and fill in a few of the gaps in the ancient history of Israel. So we can understand that Josephus had better copies of the Hebrew scriptures. However, I'm not impressed with his interpretations. And I'll explain why here as we proceed. But his history, when we look at the Old Testament, the last book in the Old Testament is the prophet Malachi. And I would estimate that that is proper in that aspect of the order of those books. That is proper. That is where Malachi belongs. He was certainly the last of the Hebrew prophets and the last of the Old Testament period writers. So Malachi, in, in the ordering of the Old Testament books, he probably wrote, Zechariah wrote as the temple was being rebuilt about 520 to 516 AD. Malachi wrote no earlier than the time of Ezra. Now, Ezra and Nehemiah, the historical books, they aren't in the proper order themselves because I could prove beyond doubt that Nehemiah actually preceded Ezra. But Ezra dates to about the middle of the 5th century B.C., about 458 to 450 B.C. In there, his book was written. And the events which, which it details contemporary to his time because his first six chapters are older than his time. Well, well Malachi wrote no earlier than that. And Malachi talks about the race mixing that began with the Canaanites among the priests, just as Ezra did, except that Malachi's discussion of it seems to be from a later time where the priests actually repeated those sins, even though they could have been from Ezra's time. So Malachi wrote sometime from the middle of the 5th century BC to the perhaps the, no later than the end of the 4th century B.C., in there. But Malachi is very difficult to date because he doesn't mention any historic contemporary figures in his prophecy. So it's very hard to date. In any event, Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament chronologically and in the, the order that they were written. And is a 400-year gap, at least, to the time of the Gospels. So what happened in that gap? What source can we use to understand the composition of the people of Judea? Why there was such division in Judea? Why Christ himself and the apostles later had disowned many of the people of Judea? And all of that's explained once you read the histories of Josephus and the, the history of his own time and the two centuries before him that he that he um, he he gives a narrative which he himself had drawn from legitimate historical sources that no longer exist to us today. So Josephus had this historical narrative that he put together from recognized sources, sources recognized as authorities in his time.
and they also correlate with and corroborate what we see in 1st and 2nd Maccabees. Now, 1st and 2nd Maccabees are not consecutive books. They're two different works which basically recount the same history from two slightly different perspectives. We don't really know the author of 1st Maccabees. That's um, arguable. And that book has always been a part of the Hebrew scriptures until the 19th century, I think, when, when it was removed from the King James Version and relegated to the Apocrypha. But 2nd Maccabees was actually a separate account of the events in 1st Maccabees written by someone named Jason of Cyrene. So 2nd Maccabees and 1st Maccabees are telling the same history from two different perspectives. Well, Josephus is basically a third perspective on all of that and corroborates a lot of what we find in 1st and 2nd Maccabees. So we have these witnesses to this intertestamental period which explain to us and, and give the historical backdrop for the gospel of Christ and, and the struggles and epistles of the apostles how can we ignore it? If we really want to understand the New Testament, how can we ignore that history? Flavius um, Josephus wrote, I'm sorry, I should give you a chance to respond to that. That they were <laughs> impromptu All remarks. I was going to say was that um, Josephus, he could just be like a, um, you know, a pious white Christian now who um, can accurately tell you a bit of history, like the past 100, 200 years but then be completely blind on the racial issue or the politics, right, or what was going on, but he can still give an honest account of certain events that happened, right? And that's what he was. That is what he was. And, and we'll discuss that a little more. But I do believe that Josephus, Flavius Josephus, was a, a, um, a descendant of the tribe of Levi, and that he was not polluted with Edomite or Canaanite blood. I believe he was an authentic, sincere man who was, like any um, British conservative of today, like any American Republican of today, who's white but who's totally immersed in the politics of his nation and who, who has been immersed in... The, the modern concepts of egalitarianism and diversity, we see that in ancient Judea with, with the Israelites and the Edomites and, and how the Edomites were all converted to Judaism and, and circumcised and followed the laws of the, of, of the Judeans. Well, they became none other than Jews by Josephus' own words he blindly accepted that. Just like so many white conservatives today in America, Britain, Germany, blindly accept diversity as being okay and inevitable and not thinking there's anything wrong with it, we have that same phenomenon in Flavius Josephus. And that's the way I view Josephus. He understood there was a difference between Edomites and Israelites, but he never saw anything wrong with it because that's the learning that he received. That's the culture that he grew up in. And he accepted it without questioning. 
Flavius Josephus wrote four books, which can, with all certainty, be attributed to him. According to one of those books, which is a short autobiography, he was from a priestly family of the tribe of Levi. And in his younger years, he spent about three years as an Essene in the cult or the sect of the Essenes. Ultimately, however, Josephus became a Pharisee. But that alone does not make him an evil man. The parties of the Pharisees, Sadducees, and Essenes were political as much as they were religious, although the Essenes didn't engage in politics. They were more apolitical than political. They were still political. It was a political concept not to engage in politics. So, if a man at the time wanted to have any influence or any role in the political life of the nation, being Judea, then being an Essene was a dead end. And the only other reasonable choice for a pious man was to join the Pharisees. And that's because the Sadducees were absolutely heretical. They were, I mean, the Pharisees were heretics in a lot of ways, but at least the Pharisees um, retained a lot of the primary beliefs found, or found in Old Testament scripture, which was that God would, would punish or reward men based on their behavior, the belief in the afterlife and the continuation of the spirit, things like that, the Pharisees clung to and defended those beliefs where the Sadducees rejected all of that. So the Sadducees were far more heretical. So the only reasonable choice for a pious man was to join the Pharisees if you want a role in the course of your nation, if you want an office, if you want to have any political say whatsoever in the direction of your nation, he had no other choice but to join the Pharisees. However, while the Essenes were excluded from the political scene in Judea, Josephus did attest that of each of the sects in Judea, the Essenes were the only ones who were all Judahites. He's, the word in English is Jews, but the meaning is Judahites, people of Judah, Benjamin, and Levi. Judahites by birth. And he explained that in, in book two of his Wars of the Judeans. There he had written describing the Judean sects, and he said the third sect, which pretends to a severer discipline, are called Essenes. These last are Judeans or Judahites by birth and seem to have a greater affection for one another than the other sects have. And I would say that that's because they maintained their natural that their natural kinship and their racial purity. Just Having, like today, right? Um, so, sorry, I was just going to say, just like white nationalists today, although now it's all infiltrated with Jews. Well, well right. True white nationalists, or, or actually the only true white nationalists to me are identity Christians, should display and, and usually do display a greater affection for one another. And, and a greater allegiance to one another that, than, say, Pentecostals, right? 
who see each other for two hours a week on Sunday. Having informed us that of the religious sects in Judea, only the Essenes were Judeans by birth, it is evident that Josephus was also informing us that the other sects were accepting converts of the other nations, namely the Edomians, and in fact, most of the Sadducees were Edomites or Edomians. So Josephus, being a Pharisee, it is evident that his religious learning and interpretations of ancient history and scripture must have been in conformance with the teachings of his party, the party of the Pharisees. It is clear in the New Testament records that these parties were distinguished by various religious beliefs. For that reason, I do not give much credibility to Josephus's interpretations of Genesis or other early accounts in Scripture, as they would naturally reflect the leaven of the Pharisees, which Christ himself had condemned. However, in spite of that, I believe Josephus himself was an honest man and earnestly sought to tell the truth about his nation, in spite of his biases, and in spite of these things concerning which he was either naive or ignorant. For example, Josephus accepted the mass conversion of the Edomites to Judaism without question. He never spoke against it. He never criticized it. And he spoke admirably about members of the family of Herod in spite of their sins and in spite of his own professed knowledge that Herod was a full-blooded Edomite, as he informs us several times in his writings. We see the same phenomenon played out in the West today, where those who are engaged in the political life of the various nations of the West do not speak badly of the immigration and the integration and assimilation of diverse races into the natural populations of their respective nations. More importantly, Josephus described in detail the fact that the Edomites were indeed assimilated, the process of how that happened, and those descriptions corroborate the similar testimony of Paul of Tarsus in the New Testament, while Josephus's version is in turn corroborated by Strabo of Cappadocia. Strabo attests on two occasions in the 16th book of his geography that Judeans and Edomians lived together, mingled together in Judea, sharing in the same laws and customs. Strabo attested that the Edomians were mixed up with the Judeans and that they joined the Judeans and shared in the same customs with them. And that can be found in Strabo's Geography, Book 16, Chapter 2, Paragraph 34. This composition of Judea in the time of the Herods is the most significant lesson in Josephus because it reveals the true identity of today's Jews 
in a historic narrative, a historical narrative, perhaps I should write, with which the writers of the New Testament agree. So while Josephus had his faults, his works are nevertheless invaluable to us today, and especially if we want to understand the circumstances in Judea at the time of Christ and the apostles. Once one realizes that a large segment of the population of Judea at that time were actually Edomites and not Israelites, all of the reasons for the words of Christ describing the division of the people become absolutely perfectly clear. And so do the words of Paul, who in Romans chapter 9 had described those very same circumstances at length, but in a different manner, from a different perspective than Josephus. Yeah, these are very helpful for new people coming to CI, that it everything starts to make sense, why Jesus is um, constantly uh, followed and hounded, and they're always trying to trip him up. And you think, well, why would they do that? Why would, you know, Israelites do that? But once you realize they are Edomites, the descendants of Cain, it all makes sense. And that we, the white race, are the Israelites. And they're also these other races, right? And hopefully the, this will all make it clear. Right. It, it absolutely will make it clear. I'm, I'm not going to get into all of the citations here because it would take far too much time. But Josephus had explained in the time of John Hyrcanus. Now, 1st Maccabees and 2nd Maccabees both somehow, I don't know why this is, right? I can't explain it. It's all, it, it, it is awfully convenient for Jewry because perhaps if the history of John Hyrcanus and Alexander Janius, who came after him, if their history were included in the books of the Maccabees, modern Christians would understand the nature of the Jews as being Edomites a lot more clearly because they may have that in their Bibles or in their Apocrypha, right? But 1st Maccabees and 2nd Maccabees, which both tell the same, his the same history, they both end roughly with, with the ascension of John Hyrcanus to be high priest. Before John Hyrcanus, the, the policy of the Hasmonean high priests was to run the Edomites out of Judea and burn their cities and, and try to expel them. But with John Hyrcanus, that policy always failed because there were not enough Judeans. The population wasn't large enough to actually occupy that land and hold it. So they were successful militarily, but they were not successful demographically. Then from the time of John Hyrcanus, the, the policy changed. And he decided that he was going to start forcibly converting them to Judaism and follow the laws of the Judeans, of the people of Judah. Now, from there on, we can basically call them Jews 
because they're going to be mixed. And today's Jews are the result of that mixing. Christ said, my sheep hear my voice. His gospel was aimed for the true Israelites, the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Yahweh God, as Paul of Tarsus repeats in Romans chapter 9, hated Esau. So these Edomites who moved up into Judea after the Assyrian and Babylonian deportations of the true Judahites and Israelites, they became the Jews. And people today think they're Israelites, but they're not. They're Edomites. So John Hyrcanus began this policy, and Josephus details his conquest of cities that Edomites were inhabiting and how those cities were first forcibly converted to Judaism and the people, when given the option of converting or departing, gladly converted, gladly and willfully converted, and became, from that point on, they became none other than Jews, as Josephus said. And he explained that in the time of John Hyrcanus of Dora and Marisa, which are the Old Testament cities of Dor and Marishah, but were inhabited by Edomites after the Assyrian deportations. So all those Edomites were converted to Judaism, and they became Judeans, or Jews, as they're called today. But that's not all. Later, maybe 20 or 30 years later, in the time of Alexander Janius, who was the high priest, and the first high priest of Judea to call himself king, he... And Josephus enlisted 30 other significant towns or areas of Judea that Alexander Janius had forcibly converted the local populations, which were Edomite and Canaanite, to Judaism. And if they refused, and Pella, the people of Pella did refuse to convert, he burned them out. And Josephus explains that. These accounts of the forced Edomite conversions to Judaism are found in Josephus' Antiquities of the Judeans, Book 13. But Antiquities was not Josephus' first book. Rather, his first book was Wars of the Judeans. And before I get into wars, let me say that I'm going to put a link into this, the notes for this podcast to my Romans commentary and part 12 of that commentary, which is where I start to explain Paul's words in Romans chapter 9 and the relationship of Jacob and Esau, which Paul describes in Romans chapter 9. And in that chapter, I give all of these citations from Josephus and Strabo which corroborate what Josephus said. So, this Wars of the Judeans. According to his own preface, Josephus wrote wars to the upper barbarians because he wanted them to have an accurate account of the plight of Judea in its uprising against the Romans while he had found 
other accounts of those wars offered by the Greeks and Romans to have been inaccurate. Now, most of those accounts are lost to us today. But Josephus wrote wars to straighten out that history from the perspective of an actual Judean rather than from an outsider's Greek and, and Roman perspective. And you can see the biases where Tacitus discusses them. So among these upper barbarians, Josephus had counted the Parthians, the Babylonians, the quote-unquote remotest Arabians, and the Adiabene. Adiabene was an ancient kingdom bordering on Parthia to the east and Armenia to the north and west. And it was apparently inhabited by both Saka and Assyrians. Assyrians, of course, there was no more Assyria, but that doesn't mean that all the people were exterminated. However, if you look at the Greek maps, Strabo and Diodorus Siculus, how they describe that area, they didn't actually make maps, but we could make maps from their descriptions, right? So, so we could see that primarily the Saka lived in Adiabene, but there may have been remnant Assyrians there as well. And it seems that that is true. Adiabene was what was formerly part of northwest ancient Assyria. A queen from Adiabene converted to Judaism and built a palace for herself in Jerusalem in the first century AD. This history is in modern times confounded, and Josephus is interpreted as writing only to Jews who were scattered in these places. However, that is not true, and the interpretation takes Josephus' own words out of context. What Josephus had said was, I thought it, therefore, an absurd thing to see the truth falsified in affairs of such great consequence and to take no notice of it, but to allow those Greeks and Romans that were not in the wars to be ignorant of these things and to read either flatteries or fictions. And this is Josephus's view of the other histories of his time written about the, the wars between the Judeans and the Romans. And to read either flatteries or fictions, while the Parthians and the Babylonians and the remotest Arabians, or the remotest inhabitants of, the, of Arabia, they weren't necessarily Arabs by race, and those of our nation beyond the Euphrates, with the Adiabene, by my means, knew accurately both how the war begun, what miseries it brought upon us, and after what manner it ended. That's what Josephus said. Later, in Antiquities, Book 11, I say later because Antiquities was written after wars. In Antiquities, Book 11, Josephus is writing regarding a letter received by Ezra the scribe from the Persian king Xerxes. And he, in turn, sent a copy to the Israelites in captivity and those who were still in the area, because many of them had left. And Josephus wrote, in part, when Ezra had received this letter, he was very joyful and began to worship God and confessed that he had been the cause of the king's great favor to him.
and that for the same reason, he gave all the thanks to God. So he read the letter at Babylon to those Judahites that were there, but he kept the letter itself and sent a copy of it to all those of his own nation that were in media. And when these Judahites, or Israelites perhaps, but Josephus calls them Jews, had understood what piety the king had toward God and what kindness he had for Ezra, they were all greatly pleased. Nay, many of them took their effects with them and came to Babylon as very desirous of going down to Jerusalem. But then the entire body of the people of Israel remained in that country in media. Therefore, there are but two tribes in Asia and Europe subject to the Romans, while the ten tribes are beyond Euphrates until now and are an immense multitude and not to be estimated by numbers. Now, let me say this. Let me digress before I continue with my prepared notes. Josephus was knowledgeable in the antiquities of the Judeans, the wars of the Judeans. That's where he lived. That's where he grew up. He was a priest. He was educated in all of that. So that was also basically his limited perspective. He didn't and he couldn't have understood that those Khomri, as the Assyrians called them, those Saka, as the Persians called them, had long been migrating into Europe. But Josephus did understand that there were still large numbers of these people beyond the Euphrates that were of his nation. And they're the people that he's addressing in wars. And that includes the Parthians and, and the Babylonians. Well, many of the Babylonians are actually Judeans that were resettled in Babylon by the Babylonians themselves and never returned to Jerusalem. So the Apostle Peter, at the end of his first epistle, he professes that he's in Babylon because he is the apostle, he is an apostle to the circumcision, to those of the, of, of the captivities who were still practicing the ancient circumcision and, and Sabbaths and, and things of ancient Israel. A lot of the Israelites did not go beyond the Caucasus Mountains, did not migrate through Anatolia. They stayed in those ancient places to which they were deported. And there were remnants of those remaining in the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, and even in the time of Josephus. Now, ultimately, many of them were pushed up into Europe or overrun by the Arabs and, and the Muslims and converted to Islam and eventually became mixed. So it, it's the historical process is long and, and arduous. It, it's very difficult to put in a few words in a podcast. But Ezra had sent to Cassiphia for some priests when he found that the priests at Jerusalem, when he returned to Jerusalem from Assyria in 458 BC, from Persia in 458 BC, Ezra found that the priests were corrupted 
the Levites, and he replaced them with priests from Cassiphia. So evidently, and Cassiphia borders on the Caspian Sea. That's where it gets its name from. Herodotus had spoken about the place. That That's where many of the Israelites must have dwelled. Well, well the Hyrcanians, and, and I'm going to get into this, and the Parthians are remnants of the children of Israel in captivity, just like the Cimmerians and the Saka, who were before them. As they settled in one place for a long time, they sort of took on a different name. But the Parthians, there's much historical evidence demonstrating the fact that the Parthians are also from the Saka. In, in fact, their, their leader was called Arsakas, Arsakes, Arsakes. So Arsakes, that word, R is a high point or a peak, but of a man, it could be a chief. It's a mountain, but of a man, it could be a chief. And Saka, Arsakes, is really a title meaning the chief of the Saka. And that was the title given to the Parthian rulers. That's only one example of, of some of the evidence. Of course, there were never an immense multitude of Jews beyond the Euphrates at any time in history. But there were an immense multitude of Saka, or Scythians, the descendants of the ancient tribes of Israel, which had been taken into Assyrian captivity. One portion of these were the Parthians. Others were the Adiabene and, and the remotest occupants of Arabia and Babylonia. If you look at Strabo of Cappadocia, at Diodorus Siculus, and their explanations of where the Scythians were living at that time, you'll see the same places that Josephus had written to in his book of wars, the wars of the Judeans. He wanted help. He wanted them to come and uh, help against Rome, right? Well, well, that was, he expressed in that opening chapter of wars. In it, It's called the preface, but it's really the first um, couple of dozen paragraphs of book one. Some editions separate it into a preface, but if you look at the numbering, it really isn't a preface. It's the it, it's a preface, but it's really the opening to Book One of Wars, which Josephus wrote after he had written all the other books. He went back and wrote those first paragraphs of Book One. So, so he had completed the work and and then wrote that first portion because it wasn't yet published. So when it was published, it it looked like he wrote the first two dozen paragraphs last, which is basically true. That's what he did. So he said in that preface, in those opening paragraphs, that many of the people of his nation had hoped that those upper barbarians and those Parthians would join the Judeans in their revolt against Rome, but they didn't. For whatever reason, they didn't. And the Romans and Parthians were at enmity with one another along the banks of the Euphrates River and, and in Armenia. They, they were fighting for control of Armenia for a long time before the outbreak of the Judean Wars. So the Judeans would naturally have hope that the upper barbarians and the Parthians would join them in the wars. 
and they never did. It just wasn't meant to be. I don't know. I don't know why. I don't think we can determine why they never did, but they never joined it. So the Do you have any idea where that name Allen comes from? The Allens. No, I don't know where the name comes from. I can't. I, I, I mean, I don't. I don't know where it first appears in history, in, in probably in the in in some of the Greek writers, perhaps. I don't recall offhand if that specific name is found in Diodorus or Strabo. I never really sought out to investigate that name. But the, those um that immense multitude of Saka or Scythians are the descendants of the ancient tribes of Israel, which, which had been taken into Assyrian captivity. We spoke about them at length last week in part 10 of this series. But another portion of those were the Parthians. They were Saka. Others were the Adiabani, where the Saka dwelt. And, and the remotest occupants of Arabia and Babylonia would, would be people of the Babylonian captivity of Judah, primarily. And we see them mentioned in Acts chapter 2, that there were Judeans present at the first Christian Pentecost from Arabia and, and Babylonia and Persia. Now, we get to these Alans. Josephus also described the Alans as Scythians, and he included Wars which the Alans had in his seventh book of Wars of the Judeans. Why would he include them if he didn't understand that they were part of that immense multitude of Israelites beyond the Euphrates? He had no reason to include them for any other reason in his wars. But he took half a chapter to discuss them. One district of Parthia from which the Parthians had emerged was called Hyrcania, and Hyrcanus was also a name popular among the high priests of the period of the Maccabees. Well, Hyrcania is where Cassiphia was, and, and Ezra had gone to Cassiphia to get priests because the Levites that had returned in the time of Zerubbabel had corrupted themselves. So Ezra had to send back for more priests. Ezra is 458 BC. Um, Zerubbabel is 520 BC. So in 60 years, those Levites had corrupted themselves, and Ezra sent, Ezra got pissed off and sent for more priests. That's in Ezra chapter 8. And I sent with them commandment unto Edo, the chief at the place Cassiphia. And I told them, what they should say unto Edo and to his brethren, the Nethanims. Now, the Nethanims were a group of temple servants of the Levites at the place Cassiphia, that they should bring unto us ministers for the house of our God. Ministers meaning more Levite priests, because only Levites could be priests at the temple of, of Yahweh. And by the good hand of our God upon us, they brought to us a man of understanding of the sons of Mali, the son of Levi, 
the son of Israel, and Sherebiah with his sons and his brethren, 18. And Hashabiah and with him Jeshiah of the sons of Merari and his brethren, their sons, 20. And also of the Nethanims whom David and the princes had appointed for the service of the Levites, 220 Nethanims, all of them were expressed by name. So all of these people were ostensibly Levites, or the Nethims may have been from other tribes in Israel who were made to be temple servants, and they were brought back from Cassiphia at the time of Ezra. And when you understand, and, and this is long and difficult, because for a thousand years, Christians have listened to the commentaries from, from the Jews who have taught mainstream Christianity is basically formulated from the Bible commentaries and, and beliefs of the Jews. And it's wrong. And, and they all think that Nehemiah preceded, or, or I'm sorry, followed Ezra. And that's a lie. I could prove straight from the pages of Nehemiah and Ezra that Nehemiah was the Babylonian governor. He was an Israelite appointed governor of Jerusalem by the Persians from 503 B.C. to 490 B.C. And that Ezra received his commission to return to Jerusalem from Artaxerxes in 458 B.C. So Ezra followed Nehemiah. And Ezra gets back to Jerusalem and finds these priests what were um, polluted and, and sinning. And he, he called for new priests, and he went to Cassiphia, which is a town on the Caspian Sea and in the district that we would know as Hyrcania. So later on, when these Maccabees come to, to be high priests, these priests called the Maccabees, which are really the Hasmonean dynasty, they had this name, Hyrcanus, prominent among them. That, that's a clear connection to me, but you won't find it in any mainstream Bible commentaries. It's sad that we learned Christianity from the Jews, so we're missing tons of information, basically. <laughs> or we had the wrong interpretation of it. So Josephus must have counted these Allens among those people because he included their wars in his book, Wars of the Judeans. And, and there was no necessary context for his inclusion of their wars. During the same period, the, the period of the Maccabees, when Rome was coming into Syria and Judea, the Maccabees had appealed to the Parthians for help against the Romans. Now, Judea was conquered by the Romans in 63 BC. Herod, the Edomite, had his father was, was a general leading the, the Edomite portions of the Judean army. And the Herods had actually betrayed the Hasmoneans and sided with the Romans, which is the first step in Herod, Herod's actually becoming the king of Judea.
And that started in the 60s BC, 60 something years before the time of Christ, when the Romans were, were um, conquering Judea and, and of course the people of Jerusalem were resisting, were, were fighting against them then. <coughs> Excuse me. The Magi <clears throat> of the time of the birth of Christ must also have been from that same region, <clears throat> from the region beyond the Euphrates, as the Greek historians explain that the Magi were originally a priesthood found among the Medes. Well, the Medes is where we find, the, the cities of the Medes is where we find a great number of the children of Israel after the captivities. As we have already stated in this series of presentations, it is very plausible that those Magi were originally Levites, and that's how they knew to find the, their Messiah and, and about the circumstances of his birth. They must have had and, um, more, sorry. a greater body of ancient prophecy than we have left in our Bibles today. I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And um, with Herod backstabbing um, us and gradually taking over, it's um, exactly what's happened today, right? We've let Converso Jews into Christianity, and now they rule over us. That The exact same circumstance, just another bit of evidence that they're Edomites and we're Israelites, right? Well, absolutely. There's all sorts of evidence in, in the prophets, the Hebrew prophets, as well as in the histories. And, and why does the Christian church ignore this history? They worship Jews. All these Christian churches worship Jews, and they ignore this history. Traditionally, the Roman Catholic Church in the medieval period despised Jews, but when a Jew was willing to be baptized and quote-unquote converted to Christianity, the Jew was exalted. So many converso Jews became bishops in the Roman Catholic Church in, in the medieval period, and, and they were, were the most prominent Bible commentators of the time. Nicholas of Lyra and Paul of Burgos are the two leading Bible commentaries cited frequently by Martin Luther, and they were both converso Jews. So they had a great deal of influence over Martin Luther and many other Protestant theologians and Catholic theologians. That Their Bible commentaries were the most widely read in medieval Europe. So that's why I say that Europeans were taught Christianity by the Jews. That's not the way the apostles had planned it. That's not the way the apostles taught Christianity. In Antiquities Book 12, it is made apparent by Josephus that the Greek kings of Syria are meddling in the affairs of the high priests of Jerusalem. They're the kings that are generally called the Seleucids. And they even removed from office a certain priest and replaced him with another. Part of the reason for the troubles with the priests was a desire among some of them to Hellenize. Now, this is about 170, 160 BC in there. And some of these priests in Jerusalem wanted to Hellenize, which is to adopt the Greek mode of living. 
while others insisted on remaining in their own traditions. So Josephus describes priests named Jesus, or Jesus in English, and Onias, who had changed their names to Jason and Menelaus. Menelaus being the name of the great ancient king of Sparta who helped defeat the Trojans. And Josephus described how they and others of their party had retired to Antiochus in Syria, the capital of Seleucid Syria, and informed him, Antiochus being a person in, in this instance, I'm sorry, and informed him that they were desirous to leave the laws of their country and the Jewish way or Judean way of living according to them and follow the king's laws. Now, the Seleucids were Macedonian Greeks. Antiochus was a Macedonian and one of the successors. He was a descendant of one of the successors to Alexander the Great when his empire was split up. And he basically ruled over Syria to the Euphrates River as far as Parthia. Because Parthia, even though Alexander had conquered Persia and Parthia, the Seleucids didn't rule over them for very long. They eventually gained independence. I'm not sure exactly when that happened. I think that may have happened in the late 3rd century BC under the Parthians. I'm not exactly positive. But these Judeans wanted to follow the king's laws and the Greek way of living. Therefore, they desired his permission to build them a gymnasium at Jerusalem because Jerusalem was under the rule of the Seleucids at this time. And when he had given them permission, they also hid the circumcision of their genitals that even when they were naked, they might appear to be Greeks. Accordingly, they abandoned all the customs that belonged to their own country and imitated the practices of the other nations. Now, of course, the Greeks, and, and we shall see many citations later on, the Greeks were white and they were often blonde. They weren't always blonde, but they were often blonde. So the Judeans certainly could not appear to be Greeks by hiding their circumcision unless they were also white and often blonde. The synagogue art, which we've already discussed in this series of presentations, the synagogue art of the second and third centuries AD, some of it created 500 years after these events, which are described here by Josephus, certainly shows that they were white and often blonde. It's just like today, right? Can, can you really tell uh, Europeans apart by nationality? You, you know, it very easily um, Germans could infiltrate England or England could infiltrate America, right? It's exactly the same. Well, well absolutely. I mean, there were probably more Irishmen today in New York, New Jersey, Massachusetts than there are in Ireland. I'm sure. The high priest, Onias, this is around, around 160 BC. 
And, and I'm sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself by a paragraph. Another proof that Greeks and Judeans were of the same race is found in Antiquities, books 12 and 13. In book 12, Josephus records a letter sent in the early 2nd century by Arius, king of the Lacedaemonians. Now, Lacedaemonia was the principal district of the Peloponnesus for a long time. It was the most notable district of the Peloponnesus in Greece, and Sparta was its capital. It was the, the district of Greece to the southeast where the city of Sparta was located. Arius, king of the Lacedaemonians, which would also mean he's king of the Spartans, to Onias sends greetings. Onias was the high priest leading up to the time when the Seleucids had come to Jerusalem and severely damaged the second temple. And it was closed for several years after that. And the, for that reason, the Hasmoneans led a revolt. And they actually, and against all perceivable odds, because the Seleucids were seen as being much more powerful, they actually defeated the Seleucids. And defeating the Seleucids, they were able to maintain independence from that defeat, which was probably about 155 to 150 BC in there, all the way to 63 BC, when Jerusalem was conquered by the Romans. So for close to 100 years, the, the people of Jerusalem were independent. And during that 100 years, they converted all the Edomites to Judaism, forcibly. So when the Romans got there, the Romans did not really distinguish them from one another. They were all Judeans to the Romans. So, this, getting back to this letter, Arius, king of the Lacedaemonians, to Onias, sends greetings. We have met with a certain writing, whereby we have discovered that both the Jews, or properly Judeans, and the Lacedaemonians are of the same family and are derived from the kindred of Abraham. So this is the king of Sparta making this claim. It is but just, therefore, that you, who are our brethren, should send to us about any of your concerns as you please. We will also do the same thing and esteem your concerns as our own, and will look upon our concerns as in common with yours. Demodeles, the name of a certain Spartan, who brings you this letter, will bring your answer back to us. This letter is foursquare. Now, now that this was ancient letters, kings, that they had seals on them, and kings were very wary about letters being edited or added to or subtracted from when they were sent. So that's why we read, this letter is four square, the size of the letter, and the seal is an eagle with a dragon in his claws the seal. There is a record of that same letter in chapter 12 of 1 Maccabees, and although it is preserved somewhat more concisely, 
it still conveys, it conveys the same general meaning that these Spartans are, are blood kindred to the people of Judah. The high priest Onias, because of the circumstances of the war with the Greek kings of Syria, could not answer that letter immediately. But the answer of his successors is recorded in Antiquities Book 13 and continued correspondence between the Judeans and Spartans in 1 Maccabees chapter 14. So Josephus records the answer to the Lacedaemonians given in a letter to Sparta by a later high priest named Jonathan, where it says, Jonathan, and this is from the same book of antiquities, book 12, Jonathan, the high priest of the Judean nation and the Senate and the body of the people of the Judeans to the ephors and Senate and people of the Lacedaemonians send greeting. If you be well, and both your public and private affairs be agreeable to your mind. It is according to our wishes. We are well also. When in former times, a letter was brought to Onias, who is then our high priest, from Arius, who at that time was your king, by Demodeles, concerning the kindred that was between us and you, a copy of which is here appended. We both joyfully received the letter and were well pleased with Demodeles and Arius, although we, did, although we did not need such a demonstration, because we were satisfied about it from the sacred writings, the Spartan claim to kinship with the Judeans. Yet did we not think it first fit to begin the claim of this relation to you, lest we should seem too early in taking to ourselves the glory which is now given us by you. It is a long time since this relation of ours to you has been renewed, and when we, upon holy and festival days, offer sacrifices to God, we pray to him for your preservation and victory. As to ourselves, although we have had many wars that have compassed us around, meaning the wars with the Seleucids especially, by reason of the covetousness of our neighbors, yet did we not determine to be troublesome either to you or to others that were related to us. Now, as soon as the Judeans defeated the Seleucids, they began trying to drive out the Edomites, so those wars also should be included in that many wars. Because for 30 years, they attempted to drive out and exterminate the Edomites and failed. They kept failing, which is when they started to convert them. But since we have now overcome our enemies and have occasion to send Numenius, the son of Antiochus, and Antipater, the son of Jason, their Judeans who had taken Greek names, who did begin to Hellenize, right? Who are both honorable men belonging to our elders, so that Antiochus is not the king of the Seleucids, whom the Judeans just defeated. He's just some Judean named Antiochus. Who are both honorable men 
belonging to our elders, to the Romans. In other words, they sent these men to the Romans. We gave them this letter to you also, that they might renew that friendship which is between us. You will, therefore, do well yourselves to write to us and send us an account of what you stand in need of from us, since we are in all things disposed to act according to your desires. So the Lacedaemonians received the ambassadors kindly and made a decree for friendship and mutual assistance and sent it to them. Now, that's the end of the account of the answer of that letter from the king of Sparta from Josephus's Antiquities, Book 12. Some years later, this Jonathan, the high priest, who sent this letter, had died. And we read in 1 Maccabees, chapter 14. Now, when it was heard at Rome, and as far as Sparta, that Jonathan was dead, they were very sorry. But as soon as they heard that his brother Simon was made high priest in his stead and ruled the country and the cities therein, they wrote unto him in tables of brass, tables meaning tablets, to renew the friendship and league which they had made with Judas and Jonathan, his brethren. Now, Judas was the first Hasmonean to lead the revolt against the Seleucids and win. He was called Maccabee for that reason. Maccabee is simply a nickname. It means the hammer. Like Charles Martel, the hammer. <laughs> exactly. Judas was called the hammer, but then the whole dynasty was called the Maccabees after that, right? So they were kind of riding on his glory, right, for the most part. But they were actually the Hasmonean dynasty is their official historical name. They wrote unto him in tables of brass to renew the friendship and league which they had made with Judas and Jonathan, his brethren, which writings were read before the congregation at Jerusalem. And this is the copy of the letters that the Lacedaemonians sent. The rulers of the Lacedaemonians with the city unto Simon the high priest and the elders and priests and residue of the people of the Judeans. The translations all say Jews, but th that term is not proper, not yet anyway, because these Judeans should not be identified with the modern Jews. The modern Jews are bastards. These Judeans were not yet bastards. They were true Judahites or Israelites. And residue of the people of the Judeans, our brethren. So it's, it, it's basically confirmed once again this kindred relationship. The other nations didn't call the Judeans our brethren or we are descendants of Abraham, we are of the kindred of Abraham. The Lacedaemonians were not flattering the Judeans by saying those things. They were basically stating a recognized historical fact, which Paul of Tarsus, as we shall see, had also recognized. So, our brethren, send greeting. The ambassadors that were sent unto our people certified, Abba, 
us of your glory and honor. Wherefore we were glad of their coming, and did register the things that they spoke in the council of the people in this manner. Numenius, son of Antiochus, and Antipater, son of Jason, the Judeans' ambassadors, came to us to renew the friendship they had with us. And it pleased the people to entertain the men honorably, and to put the copy of their ambassage in the public records to the end the people of the Lacedaemonians might have a memorial thereof. Furthermore, we have written a copy thereof unto Simon the high priest. Now this ongoing relationship and these admissions of kinship between Judeans and Spartans, and we find it in Josephus, and we find it in 1 Maccabees. I didn't bother to check to see if it's recorded in 2 Maccabees. I have my two witnesses. Some of it might be, I don't recall. This ongoing relationship of kinship between Judeans and the Spartans. The Spartans were a branch of the Dorian Greeks. And it's corroborated by Paul of Tarsus in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, where he told the Corinthians, who were also a branch of the Dorian Greeks, that moreover, brethren, I would not, I wish not, that ye should be ignorant how that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea and did all eat the same spiritual meat and did all drink the same spiritual drink for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them and that rock was Christ. So Paul is telling the Corinthians who are also Dorian Greeks that their ancestors as well as his own were in the Exodus with Moses. The average Christian might wonder how that could be, but that's the way it is, and that's historically true, or Paul would never have said it. The Maccabees and Josephus' Antiquities Book 12 confirm that that is historically true. And he doesn't say that in the Romans epistle, right? So, so it clearly tells you a little bit of, about the migration history that the Dorians were after the Exodus, but... Um, Romans before. Well, when right. You read into it. Right. Paul of Tarsus speaks to the Romans in many places as if they too are Israelites who descended from the physical seed of Abraham. Romans chapter 4 proves that beyond doubt, once you actually believe the words of Paul and not the words of the Jews in the church, Romans 4 proves that beyond doubt. So does Romans chapter 1, but in other ways. And Romans chapter 2, but in other ways. Once you understand how Paul spoke to the Romans, you realize that they too must have been Israelites, but that they must have had a separate history. And they did, because their ancestors left from Egypt and didn't go with Moses. And, and that's a, a riddle which is answered in Diodorus Siculus, Library of History, Book 40, where he explains that same thing. And... and Paul's words, calling the Romans a wild olive tree as opposed to a cultivated olive tree, prove it in many other aspects. So the Romans were also descended from the ancient Israelites, but in a different way. Their ancestors didn't take part in the Exodus. That's true. 
all of this is, once you understand all of this ancient history, and then read the words of Paul of Tarsus in his epistles, you can put the entire narrative together. It all fits. And there are no problems. There are no historical problems with it. Just believe the historians and believe the epistles. <laughs> it's pretty simple. These people weren't jerking our chains and lying to us. I mean, sure, some of the historians had some things wrong. The things Josephus mostly had wrong were either um, conjectures he was forced to make or were religious things. They weren't historical things. Men aren't perfect. Herodotus got a couple of things wrong. We all get a couple of things wrong because we're only men. But for the most part, the, the general historical narratives are corroborated from one historian to another, to another, to another, and they all, therefore, must be true. And when they agree with our scriptures, we should insist that they have to be true, especially if we're Christians who understand the importance of the word of God. In any event, if the Judeans were not white, they could never have appeared to be Greeks except for the circumcision. And not only that, if the Judeans were not white, like the Spartans were, they would have told the king of Sparta when he sent his letter claiming kinship with them that, you crazy nigga, that's what they would have told him. You crazy nigga. In turn, the Corinthians would have asked Paul of Tarsus what are you talking about, nigger? How could they have these claims of kinship over several generations repeated if they weren't of the same race? In other words, these exchanges would never have taken place. But of course, there is much more subtle evidence in the pages of Josephus than what we can exhibit here in a short presentation. The Judeans and the Spartans, the Judeans and the Greeks in general, certainly were of the same race. And you can see that in the uh, warriors they became, right? Um, well, the people in Judea were forced to become a military people to try and, you know, take back the land. And uh, the Spartans, they were a great military, you know, nation. And when have you ever seen any non-whites form nations like that? It just never happened in history, right? Well, well, right. I mean, there are no thriving civilizations in sub-Saharan Africa, and there never were. And, and if it weren't for white aid and, and food and money and interference, today their, their numbers wouldn't be a twentieth of what they are now. Yeah, their population always explodes because they breed like animals. But um, it, it's fascinating how this good relationship that Judea had with Rome back then, right? You, you really wonder what the Romans knew about the history, but, you know, it's lost to time. Right, it is lost to time. Most of it is. Livy talks about a large number of Judeans in Rome. Yeah, you wonder if were they the good ones or, or the Edomites? Well, well, I'm sure there were a lot of Edomites among them. Because once the Edomites were converted were forcibly converted by the people of Jer Jerusalem, by the Judeans, it's evident that the population of Edomite Judeans must have been larger than the population of, of Judahite Judeans, of true Judeans.
yeah, and Judea became a mask they could wear when they went to other nations now. Well, absolutely. And, and Herod, who was an Edomite, Josephus states, I believe it's four times in his histories that Herod was an Edomite. His father was an Edomite. His mother was an Edomite. And, and, and of course, all his brethren were Edomites. He, he took Israelite wives, but he also took Edomite wives. And, and then his Israelite wife, who was actually the niece of the high priest that he served under in Jerusalem, he took her to wife, and later on he killed her. And he killed her kids that he had with her. When he became king, when the Romans made him king, he had the power of life and death over his subjects. And people could go to Rome and complain about him, and some of them did. But they never got anywhere because Herod was constantly lavishing the Roman leaders, including Caesar, with gifts. Gifts and gold and large amounts of gold and silver. He was constantly lavishing them and flattering them. He was playing the role of the typical Jew. The role that medieval Jews put, played in Europe throughout history, um, finding weak princes and, and noblemen and, and exploiting their weakness and lavishing them with gifts so that they could get an economic advantage and an upper hand in, in Christian kingdoms. Herod what was the... He probably wasn't the first. There are probably others that did this in history that what we couldn't even be aware of because the records no longer exist. But Herod's the model for how the Jews had later acted in medieval Europe, without a doubt, and how they come to rule over us every single time. Yeah, and um, just one more thing about Rome. It's interesting that uh, after the, you know, Caesar and Augustus, you, if you just read a bit of the history, you start to read gradually over the centuries all these money changes coming in and usury and, uh, you know, this the average citizen getting more and more poverty, you know, in poverty, that it's exactly uh, the same model that's gradually happened to us now, right? It must have been these Edomites in Rome that gradually brought it down <coughs> and all, all these other races in as slaves. But, well, that's absolutely true. I, I mean, that's... That's another aspect of the understanding that you could gain from Flavius Josephus into the world of Christ and the reason for a lot of his words in the gospel. What, why did he say, blessed are the poor, for theirs is the, is the kingdom of heaven? And, and that's because ostensibly most Judeans, most of the white Judeans were very poor. And in fact, and I demonstrated this in a lot of my Bible commentaries, the high priests in Jerusalem, who were appointed by the Herods. And they were Sadducees. They didn't even believe the scriptures, the Sadducees. And Josephus is valuable for describing the beliefs of the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the Essenes. And you could see that the more concise descriptions given by the apostles in the book of Acts are absolutely valid when you read Josephus's descriptions, he's basically saying the same things, but he's saying more. He's giving more details, writing from a, from a historian perspective. Well, well, rather than a New Testament evangelical perspective, where the history is not as detailed. 
Well, well, the Sadducees had dominated the high priesthood. And Josephus calls them the party of the wealthy. But they were really the party of the Edomites. And they didn't even believe the scriptures. They didn't even accept the God of Israel. They didn't accept... They would mention that there is a God. They would admit that there is a God. But they denied that God any concern in the lives of men. And they denied the judgment of that God for the deeds of men. They didn't believe they were going to be judged for being good or bad. So they basically held on to the admittance of a God because they, based, because they couldn't deny one. The culture of the time would not allow you to deny the existence of a God, whether you're Roman or Judean. So they never denied the existence of a God, but they denied the power and, and concern of God in the world. And they're basically, they had an atheist philosophy without being atheists, the Sadducees. And you can get a lot of insight into the thinking of the high priests by reading those descriptions in Josephus. And that also helps to make clear what's going on in the New Testament. Yeah, I was just going to say that, that it gives you an insight into the way a Jew thinks, right? That, and also, as soon as the native white population started to go down, suddenly you get all these trannies and... Uh, homosexuals right like right towards the end in the last battles of the romans that that's what the true jew is when they no longer have to pretend amongst whites to be pious people right yes there are that josephus actually does describe an element among the sicarii who are basically just um robbers and assassins that that they that they were um organized criminals he describes trannies, men dressed as women, among the Sicarii who, who would go out and, and take part in these organized crimes. They were trannies. And, and the first trannies in history are, are Jews. Basically Antifa, but an ancient one. <laughs> yeah, really. That's what they were. That is what they were. I don't remember the exact citation, but that is in Josephus's Antiquities, in the later chapters, probably, in the later books, probably 18, 19, 20, in there. I, I could probably find that, but not for this program. So, basically, it, if, if you, and, and this is what we're going to get from the other historians, that this is very um, evident to anybody who's actually studied the classics. And there is so much data available in the classics, which proves that all of these people were, were, uh, were, were what we call white. They didn't call themselves white. They didn't identify themselves as a distinct race against non-white races because that wasn't within their context. They had no need to do that. There were very few non-white people in contact with whites 
in the ancient world. There were Nubian invaders of Ethiopia and Egypt, which were formerly white, and, and by the time of Josephus and Strabo, they were all bastards for the most part. But that was an anomaly. And the rest of the world, the world which was known to them, was demonstrably white. So they didn't have to say, oh, we're white and, and they're black. They knew about blacks, but they didn't have to write about them because all of the people in, in, within their own culture, within this Mediterranean culture in Mesopotamia and Southern Europe, were all white. However, many circumstances become apparent that they couldn't have possibly, none of these people could have possibly been black or, or Asian, as we know Asians to be um, Chinamen or Japanese or Korean or something like that, or, or even Indian. The way we know Indians today is brown people. Even India, northern India was at one time white. This brings us to discuss other historians, and, and this is your 33rd proof. Homer, Strabo, Polybius, Diodorus, Siculus, and other historians, why all of the early Greek and Roman historians show that the Israelites were white, and there are a lot of reasons, but they're usually not called Israelites, that they're called Syrians or Phoenicians, or by some other term, the, the Greek historians did not start writing until the 6th century, perhaps the late 7th century and 6th centuries BC. The earliest surviving Greek historian, narrative historian, is Herodotus, and he wrote from 450 to perhaps as late as 430 BC. The next historian criticized Herodotus, some of it fairly and some of it unfairly, but he wrote about 420 BC, and that was Thucydides. And, and then picking up from him is Xenophon, who picked up right from where Thucydides left off, and he was writing probably about 380 down to perhaps as late as 350 BC. So, so other than that, you had the tragic poets, Aeschylus, Euripides, and, and they're from the early to mid 5th century BC. Before them, you have the lyric poets and the epic poets, and much of the epic poetry is lost lost in time. Homer survived, and, and Hesiod, and Homeric hymns, and things like that. I believe that they were from the later portion of the 7th century BC. Now, the mid to late 7th century BC is my belief for both Homer and Hesiod. Even though Earlier in, in my writing, I had, and I will quote that here, I believe Hesiod to be from the early 7th century BC. And, and that's because work attributed to Hesiod, not all of it actually belonged to Hesiod. And some of it may indeed have been earlier. Early Greeks considered Hesiod and Homer to have been contemporaries. 
There were also very, at a very early time, the lyric poets, who a lot of whom date to the 7th century BC. There's very little um, valuable historical information in the lyric poets. There is some. And, and then you had the elegaic poets and the bucolic poets who dated to the 7th and 6th centuries BC. So you had a lot of early writers, but they weren't all writing narrative histories. The closest you're going to get to that is the epic poets and then the tragic poets repeat a lot of it, but they also mock a lot of it and, and they're sarcastic about it. And it, it's that they're trying to be funny and entertaining, right? So the real narrative histories that are of the greatest value are the earliest ones, in, in my opinion, and start with Herodotus about 450 BC. And that's um, Bill, just quickly, um, most of them were Ionians, right? So, so they're going to have a different perspective where the Israelites are not, a, they don't have a kinship relationship. They might uh, look at them as, you know, enemies. It's not going to be just like we just read, like the Spartans who say, oh, we have this kindred relationship. It's going to be, uh, you know, contemporaries writing, you know, about the history. So you have to keep that in mind always, right? Right. You do have to keep that in mind always. Now, now Herodotus himself was a an exception. He was from Halicarnassus. That was a Dorian city in Anatolia. And he was probably, with all certainty, a Dorian by race. The Athenians disliked him because they thought that he favored the Dorians in his, the Spartans especially, in his descriptions of the Persian Wars. So that was the first reason why Thucydides really didn't like Herodotus, because he didn't give enough glory to Athens. <laughs> now, I didn't see that when I read Herodotus. But the second reason why Thucydides disliked Herodotus, and, and the reason that he actually stated, was that Herodotus wove a lot of myths into his histories. But I don't blame Herodotus for that. And Herodotus himself explained that he did not believe a lot of the things that he wrote, but he felt it his duty to record what he was told. And that's a different view of what history is. The Greek word is historia, and that's how it's pronounced, historia. That comes straight from Greek. And historia in Greek means an inquiry. Herodotus traveled the known world, the world that was known and accessible to him at the time, and he made inquiries. He went to Egypt, he made inquiries, he wrote what was told. He went to Scythia, he went as far as the Danube River, made inquiries and wrote what was told, what he was told. He, he went to Phoenicia and made inquiries, and he wrote what he was told. And he felt that it was his duty to write what he was told. And then he took all that information and went back to Greece and wove it into his narrative on the Persian Wars. And it's invaluable. But some places there are myths because he wrote what he was told, as he said that he did in his books. So Thucydides despised him for that. But it's invaluable. 
I'm happy he did it that way. And he told us he did it. He's like, hey, I don't believe half this bullshit, but I got to write it because that's what I was told. (laughs) So I don't, a lot of people think Herodotus was naive and gullible. I think he was just doing what he felt he was obligated to do. So I don't despise Herodotus. Now Thucydides, he pretended to be an exacting technical historian. He was an Athenian general. And like you said, the Athenians, they were Ionian Greeks. They were not related to the Israelites except all the way back in time through Japheth and the sons of Noah. Now, did they know that? They weren't really aware of that. But the Ionians were seen as competitors to the ancient Phoenicians and and the in, in fact, they competed with the Phoenicians all throughout time, and, and they would have been hostile to the Israelites. But part of the point I'm trying to make is that Israel is gone by the time any of these Greek writers were writing. The Second Temple was built in 520, and that started the history of what we call the Judeans. There were only 42,000 people who returned from Babylon to reform Jerusalem in 520 BC. But the Israelites themselves were basically gone by the destruction of Samaria and then the rule of Esarhaddon, which began in 690 BC. The People of Judah were gone by the time of the destruction of the first temple by the Babylonians in 586-585 BC. The first Greek histories are being written 130 years after that. And they don't say anything of Israel or Judah. But Herodotus three times mentioned the Syrians of Palestine, and he mentioned them in contexts which the scriptures prove he's actually referring to Judah. He's calling them the Syrians of Palestine, and they're Judeans. So that was his perspective as an an outsider, that these people of Judah were really Syrians. That's what he thought just like Americans identify both the people of Quebec and the people of Ontario as Canadians, as we've already discussed, right? Homer flourished in the mid to late 7th century BC. So there are a few anachronisms in his work, but he was writing of a time long before his own, and the world he described in the Iliad and the Odyssey was the world of that time, the world of the Trojan War in the very early 12th century B.C. So writing of of Palestine, right? Homer mentioned Sidon and the Sidonians in his writings, but he never mentioned Tyre. In spite of the fact that during the kingdom years of Israel, during the biblical kingdom period and throughout the classical period, Tyre was the leading city of Phoenicia. But Homer never mentioned it. Evidently, the ancient city of Tyre laid in ruins upon the 
conquest of Canaan by the children of Israel. So we read in the scriptures, they inherited the city, but they never had to take it militarily. Why is that? Flavius Josephus, in his Antiquities, Book 8, informs us as to when Tyre was built. Now, if we read another work by Flavius Josephus against Appion, we can know how Flavius Josephus had this information because the ancient chronicles of Tyre were translated into Greek by a Greek named Menander of Ephesus. He was of Ephesus, so that sort of indicates to me that he may have been a Malaysian or a Carian by race. The Malaysians were a branch of the Carians, and they were Phoenicians. But I can't prove that Menander was a Phoenician, because Menander's work did not survive to us, except in quotations from later writers, and Josephus quotes him at length in his book Against Appion. So Josephus had access to the Chronicles of Ancient Tyre, and he would know, therefore, when Tyre was built. And he says in line 62 of Antiquities Book 8, now that year on which the temple began to be built was already the 11th year of the reign of Hiram, the king of Tyre. But from the building of Tyre to the building of the temple, there had passed 240 years. So, Josephus must have got this directly from Menander of Ephesus' translation of the Chronicles of Ancient Tyre, which I would love to have. I would love to have that book, but it's missing. So, if the temple was built around 970 B.C., which is close enough for our purposes here, it may have been a couple years later or, or a couple years earlier, then the city Tyre was built around 1210 B.C., and Homer did not give it notice when, while he wrote of the Trojan War, which started around or very shortly after 1200 BC. Now, there's a lot of um, differences in the various Greek chronologies of various writers, but they all fall to the same rough period. Apollodorus, I think, is probably the most, and, and I've mentioned this before, but I've wrongly attributed it to Thucydides. Apollodorus dated the fall of Troy to have occurred 408 years before the start of the first Olympiad. Now, the first Olympiad is 776 BC, and that's four years, I'm sorry, that's 26 years before the, or 24 years before the traditional date for the founding of Rome is the, found, is the first Greek Olympiad, 776 BC. So 408 years before the first Olympiad would date the end of the Trojan War to 1184 BC. And that war, is said, that war is said to have lasted 10 years, so its beginning may be dated to 1194 B.C. So what I'm saying is Homer was accurate, where he never really mentioned Tyre in his descriptions of the Trojan War or the Iliad or the Odyssey, where, where he talks about Palestine, he mentions Sidon, 
he actually gives an account of the looting of Sidon by Achilles. That's one of the legends attributed to Achilles. So he never mentioned Tyre, because Tyre was evidently a very young new city. One other significant fact is that Homer described all of the nations among and around those of the Greeks, but he never mentioned any Dorian Greeks. To Homer, the Dorians were only one of the tribes found in Crete. And of course, there were no Dorians in Greece. As Thucydides, in book one of his History of the Peloponnesian War, states that the Dorians were brought to Greece, to the Peloponnesus, by the Heraclidae, the sons of Heracles, 80 years after the end of the Trojan War. And this is how we can determine the truth of that letter from the king of Sparta, recorded in both Josephus and in 1 Maccabees, that the Dorians were only in Crete because they were in the course of migrating from Palestine, from Dor, when the Trojan War occurred in the middle of the judges period in ancient Israel. So that would be the Heracles would be the Phoenician ships. So, so there must have been like a, a massive alliance, uh, like an invasion, right? Yes. Yes. And, and Heracles himself is a Phoenician or related to those Phoenicians descended from Cadmus the Phoenician who had settled in, in, in Greece, in Thebes, in the Iliad. In the Iliad of Homer, both Peleus, the father of Achilles, and Achilles himself, and Menelaus, the king of Sparta, who was a Danon. Because to Homer, that there are two races in, in, among the Greeks, that there, there are the people related to the Ionians, who are the Athenians, and there are the people related to the Danans, who he also calls Achaeans. So you basically didn't have any Dorians in Greece yet. And according to the later historians, there are three, and we've discussed this in prior presentations here, where I actually had citations, that there are three basic tribes of the Greeks recognized in the... the classical Greek writings, and they are the Dorians and the Ionians and, and the Danans, and all of the other Greeks are a division of one of those. For the, for the, basically, that there are others like the, um, the Pelasgians who are said to be of great antiquity. They were also described as being driven out of Greece in, in some accounts, but that's okay. In the Iliad, both Peleus, the father of Achilles, and Achilles himself, and Menelaus, the king of Sparta, who's a Danon, were all described as having had yellow hair. Hesiod described Menelaus as having golden hair in his Catalogues of Women, and Selene is white-armed and bright-tressed, while Demeter and Ganymedes, Ganymedes being a Trojan, a Trojan youth, 
are golden-haired in the Homeric hymns, as is Polynesis, who is a Phoenician, in the Thebaid. Speaking of Thebes, the Thebaid is about the, the land of Thebes, right? Speaking of Thebes, the women of the city are described as being yellow or golden-haired in the place which the tragic poets Aeschylus and Euripides had written about the ancient city. In the Iliad, Achilles is depicted as having addressed Phoenix as old friend and father, because Phoenix was entrusted with the raising of Achilles as a child. Now, Phoenix is, to the Greeks, the a mythical character who's the eponymous ancestor of the Phoenicians, right? In the Odyssey, the title character Odysseus is described as having had yellow hair, and so did Radamanthus, the son of Zeus and the Phoenician Europa, the daughter of Phoenix. So the heroic characters in early Greek myths are portrayed as having been intimately close to the Phoenicians. Of the wife of Odysseus, Penelope, it was said that her complexion, it was whiter than sawn ivory. Where Homer imagined that the goddess Aphrodite had protected her son Aeneas during the fighting at Troy, he wrote that she had thrown her two white arms around the body of her dear son. She protected him by covering him with a fold of her garment lest some Danon should drive a spear into his breast and kill him. Juno, the imagined wife of Jove, was frequently described as white-armed Juno. In both works, men are frequently described as turning pale with fear. Now, only white people turn pale with fear, right? The blood rushes from the face. And, and they turn pale, right? Uh, I mean, over and over again, in all of these earliest works, the Greeks and their gods and goddesses are described as white, blonde, golden-haired, yellow-haired. They weren't these swarthy, hook-nosed Arabs you find in Greece today. Not at all. And this is and, and even Zeus, or the sons of Zeus, is described as blonde, right? <laughs> That's pretty astonishing. And, and this is consistent in, in the poets and, and the historians for hundreds of years. The following paragraph is from a 2005 essay that I wrote titled The Race of Genesis 10. <sighs> 15 years old. I might, I might want to update it one day soon because I could probably add a ton of information to it now. Hesiod, probably a contemporary of Isaiah, which now I would say he was probably a little later, writing in his Catalogues of Women, mentions both the boundless black skins and the Libyans, meaning that they're two different people, right? But says that from Apathus, a son of Kronos, sprang the dark Libyans and high-souled Ethiopians, but also the underground folk and feeble pygmies. I would say that the Greeks were struggling to find the origin of African blacks all the way back at that time, right? 
It is also apparent that by that time, Libya was also a little more than a geographical label and signified all of Africa except Egypt and Ethiopia. Now, the Greeks had three divisions of what we know as the continent of Africa. There was Egypt, there was Ethiopia, and there was Libya, and that was it. Africa comes from the Latin word afer. Afer is the name of Africa to the Romans, right? But the Greeks never used afer. They didn't use Africa until Roman times. There was Libya, and that was all the rest of Africa except Egypt and Ethiopia. And Egypt, the Nile River to the ancient Greeks, was the dividing line between Libya and Asia. So that everywhere east of the Nile River, the ancient Greeks saw that as part of Asia for some reason or other, that that's the picture of geography they had from their limited knowledge, where today we have much more knowledge of, of we've actually taken pictures, right, from the sky so of, of Africa. So, so we have a much better knowledge of the geography than the ancient Greeks had. But they considered everything east of the Nile to belong to Asia, not to Africa. And actually... More specifically, they considered it to belong to Arabia. So, so, so Bill, did they link that the cave people live underground with, with niggers, that they all originated from evil gods? Did I hear that right? I'm sorry. I, I had a Skype call. I don't know why Skype is doing this. I, I should never get a call during a call. I hate Microsoft. So I'm sorry about that. Please repeat that. I said, did I hear that right? That they link the, the cave underground people with niggers, that they saw them all, that they must have all originated from the evil gods, maybe from the Titans. Um, I can't be positive about that. I would have to search Apollodorus. I didn't research Apollodorus for this particular presentation. Um, a lot of that information, if it is there, would be found in his library. He, he tried to present a good overview of all the extant Greek beliefs and myths and things like that in one concise book. If anybody wants an overview of Greek mythology, I would strongly recommend the library of Apollodorus. And you could get Apollodorus's writing from the Loeb Classical Library at Harvard in two volumes, What Survives of Apollodorus. And, and he was very respected in ancient times. I believe he may have written it in the late 4th or sometime in the 3rd century, if my memory serves me correctly. But yes, they called those people troglodytes because they dwelt in holes in the ground. And there were troglodytes in Ethiopia as well as in Anatolia, in, in, in the north. In um, archaeology, if, if we look at the discoveries at Catalhoyuk, it's called, and I believe it's spelled C-A-T-A-L- H-O-Y-U-K. I've mentioned Catalhoyuk in a few essays at Christagenia. 
that there are these structures, these dwellings, which are basically made of mud and stone and accessible through holes in what appears to be their roofs and they're dug out of the ground and they're holes. And, and these people took ladders and climbed into their houses from the top down. So they basically lived in holes in the ground. And, and that to me is the source of the Greek legends concerning troglodytes. There are structures in Kenya, which are very similar, even in modern times. Well, it sounds like dwarves lived in there or something. Absolutely. Well, well by Hesiod's time, Libya was little more than a geographical label and signified all of Africa except Egypt and Ethiopia. In the Bible, though, the Lubim, Lubim is the, it's even translated Libyans a couple of times in Daniel and in the prophet Nahum. They're called Lubims in 2 Chronicles chapters 12 and 16. And they're a tribe. It's not a geographical label. It's a tribe, the Lubim. Surely the more reliable early source for understanding these people, I believe, is the poet Aeschylus. And Aeschylus would have been a contemporary of Nehemiah and, and Ezra. In his play, Suppliant Maidens, in lines 277 through 290, he lists a group of races and compares the likeness of their women to those of the Greek Danans. Among those mentioned are Libyans, Egyptians, and Amazons. And to me, that indicates a large degree of homogeneity between those peoples. Because the Libyans and Egyptians and the Amazons, who are more or less mythical, must have that they were all originally white, according to the biblical origins of these people. And the Greeks must have perceived them as white in order to compare the likeness of their women to the Greek Danans. So that indicates to me a degree of homogeneity perceived by Aeschylus. Now, Aeschylus was relating a parody of events which transpired a thousand years before his own time, which was the migration of Dan from Egypt to Greece. The Danans were not black. They were described as having white, as being white and having golden or yellow hair, although they had come from Egypt. In all the subsequent writings from Homer on down, Danans, like Menelaus, were yellow-haired or golden-haired. There are no black races or people explicitly described anywhere in Homer, in the writings of Homer. Although he mentions a warrior at Troy named Memnon, who was an Ethiopian. Herodotus explained that this Memnon was from the east, and his city was Susa. Susa was the later capital of Persia, the capital of the Persians. It was supposedly built by Memnon the Ethiopian, who was allegedly a great warrior and fought on the side of Troy in the Trojan Wars. Well, just as the Hebrew Bible identifies two lands of Cush, 
There are two lands of Cush in the Hebrew Bible. It's very clear. Nimrod was the son of Cush. He established his empire in among the cities of Mesopotamia. And there was a Cush to the south of Egypt. And wherever you see Ethiopia in the Hebrew Old Testament, open up your King James, look for Ethiopia, Ethiopians. The Hebrew word is Cush. But the Greeks called each of them Ethiopia. However, the Ethiopia to the east was forgotten by later writers. It's mentioned in, in, um, in the books of Moses because Moses went and got his wife from Cush, from Ethiopia. But when you examine the history of the scripture in relation to the Midianites, Moses' wife was a Midianite by race. They lived in the land of Cush in Arabia, not south of Egypt. Moses went to the Midianites in what is now known as Arabia to get his wife. And that was the land of Cush, and it was east of the Jordan River from Palestine. It's highly identifiable. So in the Hebrew Bible, we see two lands of Cush. We see a Cush that was that Arabia was once a part of, but started in the empire of Nimrod in Mesopotamia. And the Hebrews called that Cush. And then there's Cush below Egypt. And both of them are called Ethiopia by the early Greeks. But the Ethiopia of the east of Mesopotamia was forgotten by later writers since Cush had long been eclipsed in power by Assyria, Babylon, and Persia. So in the opening paragraphs of the Odyssey, as well as in other places, Homer mentions Ethiopians. And Butler, Samuel Butler's translation says, Now Neptune had gone off to the Ethiopians. Now Neptune is the god of the sea, right? And that's important in interpreting what Homer is saying here. Neptune had gone off to the Ethiopians, who are at the world's end, and lie in two halves, the one looking west and the other east. Now, many commentators believe that Homer was referring to black people on both coasts of Africa. But that is not true. In the Bible, as I have explained, there was at one time a Cush, inclusive of parts of Mesopotamia and Arabia, as Cush had become an empire, and another Cush below Egypt. These are the two Ethiopias to which Homer was referring. Neither were originally inhabited by blacks. Rather, they both faced the Indian Ocean, one on its west and one on its east. Neptune being the god of the ocean, he could see either Ethiopia from that ocean. The world of Homer and it, the perception of the geography of the world was very different than our perception today. 
you go to the very south of Arabia, and you could sail to the west, and you'll land in Ethiopia, south of Egypt. And if you sail to the east, you can get to the Persian Gulf and where the ancient empire and land of Kush was. The Ethiopia of the East, as it is called, by Herodotus. And it was probably the shores of Afghanistan and modern Iran that Homer really had in mind. And just north of there, we see the Hindu Kush mountains. That's not a coincidence that those mountains are named the Hindu Kush mountains until modern times. There are many words used to describe black, swarthy, or dark in Greek, which are often applied to people. For example, melis, kelahinas, pelis, fahias, other words meaning dark, but apparently not applied to people, are scotus, kenephus, gnophus, denophus, zophus, and zophorus. So the Greeks had a lot of words describing something black, swart, or dark. Our word Ethiopian comes from the Greek word ahithiops. Now, ops means face in Greek. Cyclops means round face, right? Kuklos is a circle. And cyclops, or properly kuklops, means circle face. And the cyclops was said to have had one eye, right? Instead of two. So, ahithiops properly means shining face, or glowing face, or sunburned face. And it was certainly not used by the earliest Greek writers to describe the naturally dark races. The adjective ahithos is akin to ahithiops. And the ninth edition of Liddell and Scott defines it as burnt, shining, or red-brown. The revised supplement made in 1996 inserts after burnt the words perhaps black or dark complexioned. Perhaps is the key word there. They didn't know. They were trying to stretch niggers into the classics is what they were trying to do. It amended shining to bronze colored. And you could see all that in the revised supplement. It's an appendix to the ninth edition of Liddell and Scott. I think that those later definitions in the 1996 appendix are, are there because it seems that the definition of the words have been politically corrected for modern egalitarian views. Yeah, I it sounds like a Jew um, <laughs> ordered the dictionary, right? Well, well right. I, I would reject black as a definition of Ahithus. Red-brown describes a suntanned Caucasian and not a dark-skinned Negro who only gets blacker in the sun. They get blacker and blacker the more sun they have. Yeah, and, and that's what you'd expect. Anyone living in, uh, you know, north of Africa or, you know, the Egypt region would be burnt face, right, from 
the hot sun or constantly all throughout the day. Absolutely. And and my my arms, I, I never let my legs have extended periods of sun, but my arms and, and my face, they, they just get browner and browner the more and more sun I get. Not so much my face as my arms, but if I pick up my sleeve, there's a marked contrast between my lower arms and my upper arms in, in the skin color, and that's from the sun. We get brown in the sun. Most whites get very brown in the sun. Now, throughout my youth, I never got tan. Throughout my youth, I only burned and peeled, burned and peeled, burned and peeled. And when I peeled, I was white again. I burned and peeled. But as I aged, I started to get tan. And, and that's common among whites. So, other words related to ahithiops are ahithon, which means fiery burning, of metal flashing or glittering, and the verb ahitho, which is to light up or to kindle. Ahithre means clear sky, fair weather, and the closest word to ahithiops, and almost certainly the direct root of the word ahithiops, ahithops is fiery looking, of metal, flashing, of wine, it means sparkling. According to Liddell and Scott, which is the source for all of these definitions, someone in the Greek anthologies, which is a late and wide collection of Greek inscriptions and miscellaneous writings, most of them from well into the first millennium BC, most of these are medieval, either translated or used ahithops as swart or dark. However, this is clearly contrary to the true spirit of the word's meaning as we look at the meanings of this whole family of words. Applied to Cush, who was a white man, or his white descendants, it could only mean sunburned, as in bright red or brassy colored, which is something which happens only to Caucasians in the outdoors, and is exactly what one may expect the Cushites in Ethiopia to look like. If the other descendants of Ham are demonstrably white, those of Mesopotamia, the, those of of the, even the Hittites, who were Canaanites, but they were still white, then so is Cush. And the Cushites, whom the Greeks called Ethiopians. They weren't called Ethiopians because they were black. They were called Ethiopians because they were sunburned. Bright, shining, brassy, white faces. First, Diodorus Siculus. And, and verifying all of this is another historian about which we can speak, and that is Diodorus Siculus. Diodorus Siculus was a highly educated Greek historian of the first century BC. He probably wrote up to about 35 or 30 BC, according to the latest events which he had recorded. His library of history is an attempt to record all of the known history of the world from the earliest time up to his own. To do so, he cited hundreds of earlier writers and works, most of which are now lost. 
In the opening six books of his work, he sought to describe the earliest myths and what he knew of the histories of both barbarians and Greeks. So he wrote in chapter 4, in paragraph 6 of his first book, our first six books embrace the events and legends previous to the Trojan War. The first three setting forth the antiquities of the barbarians, and the next three almost exclusively those of the Greeks. Now, just like Josephus in his first two dozen paragraphs of wars, Diodorus Siculus did the same thing. He was writing in retrospect, as he had already completed his endeavor when he went back to write his introduction in book one. And he also attested that he visited many of the places of which he had written. Actually, he attested explicitly that he visited all the places in Europe and Asia of which he had written. But he didn't say that he visited Africa. However, as I described, because Diodorus described Ethiopia, as I described earlier this evening, the Greeks had, had divided Africa into Egypt, Ethiopia, and Libya. So Diodorus never mentioned his having visited Libya, but he could visit all the places in Asia and see Ethiopia and Egypt because everything in the Nile River Valley and to the east was really considered part of Asia to Diodorus Siculus, being a Greek, and not part of Libya or, as a whole, what the Romans called Africa. So in the opening three books of his work, <clears throat> Diodorus described the founding myths, kings, and culture of the Assyrians, I'm sorry, of the Egyptians first in book one, and then in book two, the history of Assyria, with descriptions of the surrounding lands of India, Scythia, and Arabia. And then in book three, the Ethiopians and Amazons of what we know as Africa, among, all among other things. <coughs> he did that because he saw that those cultures and religious beliefs held by those people were related to his own. When the work is read, it is clear that Diodorus Siculus believed all of these groups to have had much in common, not only in their religious beliefs and culture, but also in their general physical characteristics. So where he does encounter blacks in Ethiopia, he makes a special mention of them and their savage behavior in contrast to apparently white Ethiopians. While Diodorus Siculus described the peoples of Ethiopia or Kush in Asia, he also described and made a distinction of the people of Ethiopia in Africa. Once again, quoting my essay, The Race of Genesis 10, and, and this is perhaps three paragraphs. In the first 11 chapters of his third book, 
Diodor Siculus draws from much earlier historians, as he always did for whomever he wrote about, to describe the various peoples of African Ethiopia. And it is evident that those tribes contrast with one another quite starkly. Now, what I did not mention in this essay is that Diodorus probably also visited this Ethiopia himself, and I believe he did. He said, the first Ethiopians, I'm sorry, I said, the first Ethiopians he discusses are endowed with what we may consider a well-developed form of Western civilization. For he states, and I quote, they say that they were the first to be taught to honor the gods and to hold sacrifices and processions and festivals. They quote Homer in reference to themselves. They recount the unsuccessful invasions into their country by Cambyses and Semiramis. And they claim that the Egyptians were originally Ethiopian colonists led by Osiris. That's, this is all things that I could talk about at length in other contexts. The two types of their writing, like Egypt, popular or demonic, and sacred or hieroglyphic are described. And it is said that the sacred is common among these Ethiopians. Their priests were much like the Egyptian. They believed that their kings gave, gained sovereignty by divine providence. Their laws and punishments were from custom, and they practiced the same flight of refuge which the Greeks did, which was similar to the Hebrew Levitical cities of refuge. An Ethiopian king under Ptolemy was educated in Greece and studied philosophy. And aside from a few odd customs, there is no reason to believe that these Ethiopians, whose physical characteristics were not mentioned, were anything but civilized and not much different than the rest of Western society. In stark contrast to those cultured Ethiopians, which Diodorus first discussed, beginning from Book 3, Chapter 8, Paragraph 1, he says, but there are also a great many other tribes of the Ethiopians. And where he says that, it is apparent that like Phoenicia or Libya and other labels, Ethiopia has merely become a geographical designation rather than an ethnographical one. There are also a great many other tribes of the Ethiopians some of them dwelling in the land, lying on both banks of the Nile and on the islands in the river, others inhabiting the neighboring country of Arabia between the Nile and the Red Sea. Now, the ancient Greeks thought of all of that to belong to Asia and not to Africa. And others residing in the interior of Libya, that's the rest of Africa. Here, it would be Sudan. The majority of them, and especially those who dwell along the river, are black in color and have flat noses and woolly hair. 
Here it is evident that Diodorus is describing the Nubians and other wandering black tribes of the region. And he continues and he says, As for their spirit, they are entirely savage and display the nature of a wild beast and are as far removed as possible from human kindness to one another and cultivating none of the practices of civilized life they present a striking contrast when considered in the light of our own customs. So I concluded at that time, and I said, when I wrote The Race of Genesis 10 back in 2005, so surely, and that may have been 2004, I think, so surely it is apparent here that if we do not have a white culture in Ethiopia in an era not long before Diodorus's own, we certainly have at least the remnants of one. Ezekiel chapter 30 lists Ethiopia among all the mingled people, and all of this fits very well with the picture of a once Caucasian but now adulterated Kush in that region. Now, I should add to that that it is very likely that Diodorus did actually visit this area personally, as he states in the opening chapters of his Library of History, and saw this firsthand. But these savage tribes, Diodorus was compelled to inform us that they were black in color. He never said that about any other people about whom he wrote. He never said that about any of the people in Mesopotamia, Palestine, Phoenicia, Greece, Southern Europe, Carthage, the Phoenicians of Northern Africa. He never said that about any of them, that they were black in color. And then he had to throw in that they had flat noses and woolly hair, which is the typical depiction of what we consider the African Negro or the African black. He wrote about and, all those other Ethiopians who quoted Homer, who must have known Greek, who were civilized, who had writing and priests, and, and, and all the elements of Western civilization. He never said that about them. He never even described them. To him, they must have just how, um, been other white people. I'm sorry. <laughs> I was just going to say, he's he's a... Uh... Sounds just like any educated man who visits the area and just is horrified, right? Just like um, many Westerners um, a century or two centuries ago who went over to Africa. That's exactly how they would describe them, right? Completely savage <laughs> and, you know, um, exactly what Diodorus said, right? Absolutely. And, and, and wow. To imagine that any of these other civilized people were, were black... When everybody related to them, and we'll get into this even further here when we get to Strabo, and here in Polybius, we're about to discuss Polybius briefly, and, and there are probably a lot of other sources I could have drawn on for this, but if three or four different historians are depicting these ancient Phoenicians, ancient Syrians, um, to, to be blonde and white-skinned, and, and that then the and the Judeans are called Syrians. That, then they must have all been white. They're not saying any of them are black, but certain 
nomadic tribes of Ethiopia, Diodorus Siculus felt compelled to mention as black and, and woolly-haired and with flat noses. Well, the, the end result that we see today of a sort of tall, dark, but not quite black mulatto with black features and elements of white civilization in, in remnants of Christianity and things like that, that, that these Ethiopians today are, are the final mingling or, or melding of these black, woolly-haired, flat-nosed people and the white people that used to represent the true Ethiopians. And then you have these migrant, nomadic tribes of blacks from Africa coming in to Ethiopia, and, and they end up mixing with them. Yeah, to get the result that I we recall, see in the Ethiopians of today. They're a little today. bit lighter, aren't they, as well? Ethiopians, they're kind of not like dark, but kind of a dark brown or lightish brown. Well, well right. Like Many of them are cocoa-colored instead of ebony-colored, <laughs> yeah. right? And, and that's the remnants of white blood. And, and this leads me to Polybius. And, and I don't think Polybius is, is really important, but there's a couple of significant things he said when it comes to ethnography. Polybius was um, third century, maybe it was late second century BC. I, I believe he started writing in the third century. He may have entirely written in, in the third century. Let me get this straight. In, in just a moment. Okay, he wrote in the second century BC. He covered the Punic Wars, which were several. There were three Punic Wars, I believe, between the Phoenicians and the Romans. And Polybius lived a little later, I thought, a little later than I remembered. He lived down to 118 BC. He was the most significant historian of the Punic Wars between Rome and Carthage. And he was an eyewitness to many of the events of those wars. He did not speak about the personal characteristics of any of the people. He is not much use for descriptions of personal characteristics of the ancient tribes of the Mediterranean. He did mention that the Italians in general naturally excel Phoenicians and Africans in bodily strength and personal courage. Now, when a Roman refers to Africans, he's not referring to black people. He's referring to the people of the northern coast of Africa, north of the Sahara Desert, who at that time were, except for the exceptions in Egypt, and Ethiopia, they were all white, at least for the most part. You think he's a bit biased being a Roman? Well, every ancient historian was biased and had his own biases, right? There's no doubt. They all favored their own nation, their own civilization above all others. I've never really seen an unbiased ancient historian, and, and there, I don't think there are any unbiased historians today. It, even historians who, who are, who are um, adored for their lack of bias or, or their um, balance they give to their histories are biased. 
Who writes a history of World War II without labeling the Nazis as evil? <laughs> I've never seen one, perhaps. Anyway, the Huns, right? Polybius is, is not much use for descriptions of, of personal characteristics of people, except for his one mention of Italians being excelling Phoenicians and Africans in bodily strength and personal courage. His accounts also illustrate the connections between ancient Tyre and Carthage as late as 306 BC, where the Romans had made a treaty with the Carthaginians that included Tyre and another Phoenician settlement, Utica, on the coast of northern Africa. But Polybius's histories did not completely survive. However, there is one notable and revealing fragment which came down to us in a citation of his work made by Strabo of Cappadocia. And like Diodorus Siculus, Strabo had also cited many dozens or perhaps even hundreds of earlier writers in his lengthy geography. Strabo had also written a history of Assyria, which he mentioned, which is now completely lost, and I wish we had that. That may have been as, as valuable as Menander's Chronicles of Ancient Tyre. I mean, there's a lot of valuable histories, or, or histories which may have been very valuable to, our, to improve our understanding of the ancient world, which are lost, gone, like forever, like never located, even though we know about them from other writings, never located, never found. I mean, somebody might have a manuscript stashed somewhere, but as far as we know, these things are gone. In Strabo's 17th book, he wrote, Polybius, at least, who visited the city, was disgusted with its condition at the time. He's talking about Alexandria in Egypt. He says it is inhabited by three classes of people. First, the native Egyptians, an acute and civilized race. Secondly, by the mercenaries, a numerous, rough, and uncultivated set, it being an ancient practice there to maintain a foreign armed force which, owing to the weakness of the kings, had learnt rather to rule than to obey. And he doesn't give us the racial characteristics of these mercenaries, right? Thirdly, there were the Alexandrians themselves, a people not genuinely civilized for the same reason, but still superior to the mercenaries. For though they are mongrels, they came from a Greek stock and had not forgotten Greek customs. Now, there were also, according to Josephus and other sources, a large portion of Judeans among the population of Alexandrians that Polybius did not mention there speaking of the mongrels. But when this population had been nearly annihilated, chiefly by Euergetes Fiscon, in whose reign Polybius came to Alexandria, for this king being frequently troubled by seditions exposed the populace to the onslaught of the soldiers and destroyed them. The city fell into such a state afterwards 
Homer's line was really true. To Egypt is a long and dangerous road. Taking a citation from Homer, but Homer did not know Alexandria itself. And elsewhere, Strabo himself had marveled that in Alexandria, there were mixed races of people living together in one city. So that phenomenon must have been rare in the ancient world. And this citation from Polybius is included here because his view, and he was very intimate with the Phoenicians of Carthage and Utica and Tyre, which the Romans were engaging in a war upon the Phoenicians of Africa. Polybius was intimately familiar with those people and actually visited those places and saw firsthand the people, the Phoenicians, whom the Romans were conducting their war against. But he never speaks like that of Phoenicia. He never says that they're bastards. There's no indication of that. And neither do any of the other ancient historians. Yet speaking of Memphis in Egypt, in book 17 of his geography, Strabo says, and I'm bridging myself from Polybius into Strabo here, the city is large and populous. It ranks next to Alexandria and, like that place, is inhabited by mixed races of people. There are lakes in front of the city and of the palaces, which at the present are in ruins and deserted. That happens to every city which has bastards, right? I mean, look at London and, and what's happening in London. Look at what's happening in New York. Look at Detroit. All of Detroit, because of its bastards and, and its niggers, is in ruins and deserted. It happens to every single city that mongolizes. So Memphis, in the days of Strabo, was ruined. Its palaces were in ruins and deserted. They are situated upon an eminence and extend as far as the lower part of the city. Now, Strabo never remarked like that in his descriptions of any of the other cities which he detailed. So it is apparent that ethnic diversity was more or less peculiar to Egypt in his time, as Polybius had also attested. And it shows that's where it began, for, you know, in Egypt and then spread, you know, throughout to Arabia, etc. Um, you know, you know, and that's what's gradually happened to all our countries, right? Absolutely. And, and the real browning of Mesopotamia, um, Iraq and Iran, and, and even <clears throat> further, further east of there, the browning of Northern Africa and Mesopotamia and Anatolia and modern Greece and, and Southern Italy all of this occurred, and, and even the coast of southern France, all of this occurred in the Islamic period during the Arab conquests. And it was a slow process. But before that, even Arabia was white. And it was the Islamics, on, on, the Arabians under Islam, that began to bring 
um, blacks from Africa into Arabia for use as mercenaries in their armies and eventually turned them to Islam and, and started to intermarry with them. And the browning of the Mediterranean basin happened during the Islamic period to the greatest extent and, and continued with the Turks, who were also Muslims and, and who employed Arabians and, and absorbed the Arabians into their own ranks. And the Turks, who were Islamic, they held Greece for, for 500 years and, and got up into the Balkans. And, and that they were at one time the rulers of Sicily and, and had come to inhabit places in southern Italy. That's when these regions were turned brown. That's when they became, became non-white. And, and we'll continue to see this. I, I want, and, and at the end of our last presentation, I had mentioned Strabo's white Syrians as if there were any black ones. Contrasted to Herodotus, where he called the Judeans Syrians, or Syrians of Palestine, as he described the Judeans, the people of Judah. On at least three occasions in his histories, he referred to Judeans as the Syrians or the Syrians of Palestine. And I want to read the actual citation from the opening chapter of Book 16 of Strabo's Geography, because I gave it off the top of my head last week, but I didn't actually give a citation. So this is Book 16, um, Chapter 1, Paragraph 2 of Strabo's Geography. And he said, It seems that the name of the Syrians extended not only from Babylonia to the Gulf of Issus, but also in ancient times from this gulf to the Euxine. Now, the Euxine is the Black Sea to Strabo. At any rate, both tribes of the Cappadocians, both those near the Taurus, which is a mountain range in northern Anatolia, and those near the Pontus, the Black Sea, have to the present time been called White Syrians as though some Syrians were black. These being the Syrians who live outside the Taurus. And when I say Taurus, I am extending the name as far as the Amanus. Now the Euxine is the Black Sea, and the Amanus is a mountain range in southern Anatolia, which was distinguished from the Taurus. So where Strabo said that as though some Syrians were black, that means that there were no black Syrians. If there were no black Syrians, then there were no black Israelites. The biblical histories of Israel and Syria are inseparable because from the time of David and down to the time of Jeroboam too, Israel had ruled over much of Syria including Damascus and Hamath, far to the north, 200 miles north. So we read in the words of Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 26, And thou shalt speak and say before Yahweh thy God, A Syrian ready to perish was my father, 
And he went down into Egypt and sojourned there with a few and became there a great nation, mighty and populous. The kindred, the kindred of Abraham were originally from Padanaram in the northernmost parts of Syria. And that is where Isaac and Jacob had gotten their wives. Likewise, if the Phoenicians in Greece were blonde, then the Phoenicians in Palestine must have been blonde. And the Phoenicians of Carthage were blonde. And they were all blonde because the only bastard cities known to Strabo were in Egypt. And the Greeks, without a doubt, so many of the ancient Greek writers had described the Phoenicians of Greece as being blonde. White and blonde, white-skinned and blonde, fair and blonde, over and over again, as we cited here in Homer, in Hesiod, and as we've cited in the past in Aeschylus, in Euripides. All of these Greek writers, these blonde Phoenicians of Thebes, of Greece, of Thessaly, well, that means that the Phoenicians of Carthage and the Phoenicians of Tyre, as Europa was from Tyre, according to the ancient Greek myths, and she gave birth to Phoenix, and, and she was the sister of Heracles, or perhaps the aunt of Heracles, and, and all of these other great Greek heroes were related to these people, including Achilles, who's also described as blonde. Yeah, there were only niggers on the fringes of the world, uh, you know, the world the Greeks knew of civilization. And well, um, Egypt was already turning into Detroit. And so you can see the result, right? Well, well right. We could go to Strabo and Herodotus. And, and if, if the Judeans are counted as Syrians, and Strabo says there are no black Syrians, in, inferring that they're all white, like the Cappadocians, that then... The Judeans must have also been white. If the, if the Israelites were black, there would be niggers all over Syria at this time. It's just crazy to think that the Israelites were black or even brown. They're white and blonde. And the scriptures proved that those Phoenicians of Tyre were Israelites. The circumstances which I've given here of the, of the time of the building of Tyre. And Herodotus states that all of the colonies of the Phoenicians came from Tyre. That Tyre was the mother of all of the Phoenician colonies overseas. And Herodotus states that, I forget where he stated it, but he states it explicitly. And I probably have it in, in my essay on the Phoenicians at Christogenia. So I probably have the citation there, the exact location in Herodotus. It, there, there's no doubt that the circumstances, but you can't read just one passage in the ancient classics to determine that Israelites were white. You have to have a good overview of those classics in order to determine that the Israelites and even the Ethiopians must have been white. You would think that one of these ancient historians would have talked about the niggers in Jerusalem. Or, or the niggers in Carthage, or describe them as having black skin and woolly hair and flat noses. But it never happens. 
They don't describe them most of the time. Why don't they describe them? For the same reason that Theodorus Siculus didn't describe the white Ethiopians that were cultured and read Homer because he didn't have to describe them. They were just like him. In an entirely white society, we don't, in our histories, describe our personal characteristics until an alien element comes in, and that is distinguished by the different alien characteristics that they have. Speaking of Moses, and, and we should probably get into this at a later point in more detail. I don't even remember if we've already covered it. If we have, I'm sorry. But both Strabo and Diodorus Siculus. Now, these men were, were writing in the first century BC. Strabo died in 25 AD. So he was about, he followed Diodorus maybe by 50 years in his publication of his books. But 25 AD, it's before the Judean War with the Romans. It's before the advent of Christianity. So neither of these men can, can, can be described or imagined to have any anti-Jewish agenda. Speaking of Moses, both Strabo and Diodorus Siculus recognized him as a founder of cities and as a giver of laws. And in Diodorus's 40th book, he recognizes that many of the cities in Greece and elsewhere had been founded by the outcasts from Egypt who left by sea rather than having followed Moses. Yet, imagining those places, Diodorus never spoke of black people with flat noses and woolly hair in those places. He never imagined they were of, of any alien race at all. He never imagined the Danans to be of an alien race because they came from Egypt, yet they must have been the Hebrew tribe of Dan. So in any event, all of this general knowledge of the ancient classics shows that the origins of Hebrew and Greek culture and, and ethnography were the same. Yeah, and it also confirms, of course, that the Bible is real, that the fact that he, even then he knew of Moses, he just has a slightly different perspective. He considers uh, Danaeus and Cadmus to be uh, more valiant and brave than, um, you know, the Judeans that went with Moses, right? Absolutely. He, he considered them the more noble of, of the um, foreigners in Egypt. He, he's writing from an Egyptian perspective when he gives that account of the Exodus. He's not writing from the perspective of the Hebrews. So, of course, it's going to be different. I mean, we discussed that last week in relation to the Assyrian tablets, that the, the Assyrian king saw an event one way to his favor, while the Hebrew scriptures saw the event, the same event, a different way and to their favor. That's just natural. That bias in history, there's no way around it. The only way to, to get a, a partially objective view of these things, because we're all going to have some sort of bias, it is to read both sides. And very often we can read both sides. It's not always available to us. I mean, we'll never get the Carthaginian account of the Punic Wars, right? We only have the Roman accounts. That's just life. 
the victors write the history. We'll never hear the National Socialist German account of World War II. What we do in the pages of a couple of writers, Leon de Grell, but for the most part, we only get the Anglo-American account of World War II. The victors write the history. There's no way around it. Well, thank you. And, and I guess we'll, we'll stop it there, but this is, program's going to be as long as last week's. People are going to hate me. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, that, that was great. That, that gives uh, a ton of information on the, you know, the historians of Josephus. Uh, e even if you just had that, you gain, a, a, you know, a huge glimpse into, you know, all the knowledge that they had and how the whole world was white, how it was perceived as white, and there were no niggers back then. Well, I pray, I, I pray. They were niggers, but they were savages sitting in the dirt in, in the Nile River Valley and, and, and the sand of Arabia and, and, and Libya. Okay, we'll call this a All program. Right. Well, well, thanks for having me, Bill. Um, praise Yahweh, God of uh, Israel, the European people, and Yahweh bless. Thank you. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel. And good night.